That's Romans 12, verses 1 to 8, and that's on page 1139 of the Purple Bibles. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Let's just bow our heads and uh, pray together as we begin. Dear God, thank you for speaking to us in Jesus Christ as he is presented to us in your word, the Bible. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand what you reveal of yourself here in this passage in Romans. Help us concentrate, help us to understand it, and help us to change the way we think and live in accordance with it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're thinking about worship uh, this evening. Uh, Worship means uh, devotion to God. And it's pretty obvious if you uh, look at the world that the world is full of worship. And the whole planet is um, covered in worship. People worship all kinds of different gods. Uh, the world is absolutely covered in um, religions and spiritual ideologies and uh, uh, ways of worshipping. Uh, in fact, uh, for those who've tried to stamp out worship, it's proved pretty difficult. Um, some human atheistic ideologies have tried to stop the worship of God, and it's very, very difficult to do it. It keeps kind of going underground and re-emerging. So in communist regimes, or even in Western Europe at the moment, people are trying to remove religion and the worship of God from the public arena and trying to get rid of it, and it just kind of keeps growing. Uh, In other words, human beings seem to be worshipping creatures, and indeed the Bible confirms that we were made by God for worship. Uh, We were actually designed and created to know him, to worship God. But it's uh, commonly thought that um, all the religions and spiritual ideologies of the world are all leading towards the same God. But the Bible says actually that's not quite true. It's not the way the world really is. We sometimes uh, have it described in the ways of roads leading up a mountain, don't we? You know, the religions and the spiritual ideologies of the world are sort of uh, roads leading up the mountain to God at the top. And uh, the different religions are taking different routes up but they'll all get to the same place in the end. And so all the different religions and ideologies of the world are ways of worship, different ways of worshipping God, but it doesn't matter too much because they all lead to the same place in the end. 
So you'll hear that view either expressly uh, put to you or uh, assumed in all kinds of discussions and public debate uh, in, in this country. Uh, it's a pluralistic view that there are plural r- ways to God, that there are many ways to get to God at the top of the mountain. But the book of, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says that's not quite the way it is, really. Yes, the world is full of worship. And yes, people are traveling different roads. But the roads are not actually leading towards God. They're actually leading away from God. Uh, In in other words, um, humankind, people across the world, are engaged in a worship that is running away from the living God. So the apostle says earlier in Romans, uh, speaking of the peoples of the world, uh, he says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. In other words, uh, the rebelliousness that rises in our hearts that resents having to serve God um, helps people across the world to invent different versions of him, to worship creations of our own imagination. So you might have observed, if you look at the religions of the world, it's extraordinary how the religions of the world seem to have evolved in accordance with the culture from which they've arisen. So they've tended to be shaped and to uh, emerge to meet the needs of particular cultures around the world. And you may say to yourself, it's, that, that seems a bit strange, really. You know, the religions of the world all seem to be rather convenient for the particular culture they come from. And the Bible would say, that's absolutely right. That's what religion is. Religion is the culturally convenient alternative to God. Um, so, uh, it takes uh, many different forms. Uh, but uh, the religions, of course, therefore, are similar in that they're all ways of worshipping. So, there are similarities between religions in that um, uh, you'll find they all have buildings to meet in, and there are books to read, and there are leaders to teach, and there are ways of praying and all the rest of it. But beyond that, they lead to completely different places. The practice of worship is similar in all the religions, but the place they lead to is totally different. So it's a bit like observing, you see, that roads are all the same. That's true, roads are all the same. You know, they kind of have tarmac or some kind of surface to travel on, and they usually have lanes, and um, they usually have signs on them, and there's a kind of convention that goes with the roads. And so you could say all roads are the same. Well, they are all the same, but they're not the same because roads lead to the very different places. One leads to Timbuktu and the other leads to Edinburgh. So they go to different places, and the religions of the world go to gods that could not be more different. Um, you know, I mean, if, you, if, if you're a Hindu, uh, you believe there are many, many earthly expressions of God, the many expressions of, of divine beings. Uh, if you're a Muslim, then you worship one God to whom we must all submit, who is our judge. Uh, if you're a Buddhist, then you don't believe there is any personal God, and you merely seek the enlightenment of your inner soul. If you're a Satanist, you're worshipping a very different God to to a Jew. So you can observe that they're all religions, that's true. And you can observe that everyone worships, that's true too. But the road that that worship is taking is totally different to completely different gods. And the Bible says what those gods are are different uh, uh, expressions that emerge from cultures that meet the big questions of life, but enable us to avoid serving our Creator. 
So it's interesting, though, so we do that in different ways. I mean, one way of getting away from the living God is to, is to make visible images of him. And so we make a visible image that we uh, welcome as a way of, of capturing God in a form that we appreciate. Uh, another way is to um, worship alternative versions of God. We, we reinvent him in a more convenient way. And so we say to each other over coffee, don't we, oh, I like to think of God like this. And somebody else says, well, I, I'm not so sure. I, I like to think of God like that. And what we're expressing is our human capacity for reinventing God. I don't want to worship a God like that. I want a God like this. And so this is what I like to think of God as, and that's the God I worship. Of course, an alternative is to to give the devotion that's due to God to other things than gods in life, and to make the good things of life alternatives. So they they become the supreme thing in our life, whether it's our own own prosperity or our influence or the comfort of family life or or whatever it is. Those things that are the ultimate dream, the, the ultimate goal, the thing we work and long for, that has become the God of our life. The Bible says, above all, we want to get away from serving the Creator. You see, there's a rebelliousness in us that resents serving the one who made us. We don't want God intruding in our lives and telling us how to live. We resent him. We want to get out of the way. We want him to leave us alone, to let us get on with our own lives, to live it the way we want to live it, and to serve the things we want to serve that endorse the things we want to do. And so the apostles explained in Romans that actually the religions of the world and the worship of the world, people are running away from God. Different roads, different ways, different ideologies and different theories, but they're roads that lead away from God. And yet God has acted in time and history to turn people from all those roads around and bring them back to him. How has God done that? How has God reversed that flow? How has God reversed the rebellion of mankind that is running away from God? And the answer is his mercy. What is it that turns people of all cultures around to come back to their creator? The answer is the mercy of God, expressed in Jesus Christ supremely in his death and resurrection on a cross in the first century. Now, the apostle's been describing this mercy of God that turns people around and brings us back to God in chapters 1 to 11 of Romans. Uh, If you remember, this book was written in the first century by the Apostle Paul to uh, Christians in Rome, uh, explaining to them the great message about Jesus Christ, which needs to go to all nations. If you remember the the structure of the book, you probably don't, so let me remind you very briefly, chapters 1 to 11. We learnt in chapter 1 that God's gospel message is about Jesus Christ our Lord, and it reveals his righteousness. So God's gospel about Jesus reveals his righteousness. Chapters 1 to 3 then explain that the whole world needs that righteousness as a gift from him. We don't have it in ourselves. We're not good enough for God. And so it's given to us in Christ. Chapters 1 to 3 explain that we need that righteousness. Chapter 3 to 4 tell us it's available in Christ. It's been offered to us in Christ, and in particular in his death and resurrection. And it's available by faith in Christ, chapters 3 to 4, so as to share in his glory, chapters 5 to 8, as he always promised, chapters 9 to 11. And now in chapters 12 to 15, he shows that this gift of righteousness should enable us to be united in the church, chapters 12 to 14, for a mission to the world, for God's mission to the world, chapters 15 to 16. 
And so chapters 12 to 14 particular turn to the response that we're to make to God's mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ. For you see, the mercy of God described in chapters 1 to 11 calls us to respond in worship in chapters 12 to 15. And these verses that we're looking at, particularly verses 1 and 2, really lay the foundation of a life of Christian worship, a life lived coming back to our Creator to serve Him. Uh, for example, many of you will uh, know about Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, or have even, even have seen the, um, uh, the show in London, a very successful musical. And uh, uh, many people have uh, pointed out that there's a great parallel in the uh, Les Miserables musical and uh, book uh, to the Christian message. Uh, Jean Valjean, who for 19 years um, has been in hard labor for stealing bread, um, has become during that period a hardened and bitter man. And if you remember that uh, when he's released, he, he's looking for work and he can't get a job. And uh, very kindly, a, a kindly bishop uh, gives him work and he stays with the bishop in his house. But Valjean betrays the, the trust of the bishop and during the night steals some of the family's silver and runs off into the night. But if you uh, know the, the story, he is captured by the, uh, the police and he's brought back to the bishop. Uh, but instead of condemning him and uh, ensuring that he's returned to jail, or worse, uh, the bishop acts in great mercy towards him and says, So here you are. I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? And uh, gives him the candlesticks to take away. And so uh, uh, Valjean is uh, released. The police let him go. And uh, he's overcome with the mercy that's been shown to him by this bishop, who says to Valjean, Don't forget, don't ever forget, that you've promised me to use the money to make yourself an honest man. And the, the story goes on to show Valjean is transformed by this act of mercy towards him. And so it is as, as Christians, you see, when you discover what God has done in his mercy towards us in Christ, when you discover that God sent his son Jesus into the world to suffer the penalty for what we have done wrong, when you understand that mercy, it turns you around. It turns you around. It transforms your life. And you want to worship God. And this is the big difference between Christian worship and the worship of other religions. See, in the worship of other religions, people are trying to gain the mercy of God. Trying to keep the various religious rules, the various religious protocols, the five pillars of Islam, the eightfold noble path of Buddhism, or whatever it is. Trying to keep the religious rules so as to earn the mercy of God. Christian worship is the opposite. Christian worship is response to the mercy of God. Because of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, we want to live lives of worship. It's the mercy of God that turns us round for lives of worship. But this mercy calls for the response, therefore, of chapters 12 to 15. But this kind of love that's described in chapters 12 to 15 needs the mercy of God in chapters 1 to 11. And you can't have the one without the other. So you can't understand the gospel, and you can't claim to be a Christian who understands the mercy of God if you don't now want to worship him with all of your life, as chapters 12 to 15 describe. But likewise, you'll never be able to live in accordance with chapters 12 to 15 unless you understand the mercy of God in chapters 1 to 11. So it's very striking that the evangelical revivals at the beginning of the 18th century in this country 
did lead to, the, lead to both the social reforms and the missionary enterprise of the 19th century. It was the inevitable outcome of people turning to the gospel, discovering the mercy of God, the inevitable outcome in the life of the nation. But when the Victorians abandoned the gospel and tried to keep the morality, this nation ended up with an empty moralism that was eventually jettisoned in the 1960s and 1970s. And so now, of course, the country's in a moral spiral. It's not unusual. There have been periods like this in our own history in this country and certainly around the world. But, of course, the way to rediscover that social reform and missionary enterprise is the gospel. We will never see the social transformation that we need in this na nation without the mercy of God to inspire it. And so the social transformation we long for in this country needs the missionary enterprise of the churches. We need to take the gospel of the mercy of God. And therefore, says the apostle, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, because of his mercy towards us in Christ, firstly, sacrifice yourselves. Verses 1 and 2. Let's read them again just to remind you of what the apostle says. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your reasonable act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In order to glorify God and say thank you to him for his mercy, says the apostle, sacrifice yourselves. Now, offer your bodies is the language of the temple, and it speaks of self-sacrifice. Uh, the word bodies used here doesn't just mean our physical existence. It's not just about being physically, and we always think sex, of course. It's not just about being physically devoted to God, but our whole selves, body and spirit, dedicated to God in all of our lives. Now, this all-of-our-life aspect of Christian worship is very striking. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the worship of God is described in three themes, one of submission to God reverence for God, and the service of God. And all those overlapping aspects of worship were focused upon the worship in the temple. But now in the New Testament, because Christ has fulfilled all that's required of temple worship and continues to stand in the presence of God as our high priest in heaven, therefore in this life we're no longer focused upon activity in a temple. We're focused upon Christ in heaven. And so now we live lives of submission to God, of reverence for him, and of service for him in the world in every area of life. We, we don't, as, you know, we don't as you, if you like, we don't gather to worship. All of life is worship. So worship in the New Testament, worship for Christians, is not gathering for an act of holy communion. It's not, it's not gathering to sing worship songs. Now, worship is not focused in the temple. Worship is the whole of our life. And we're to live all of our lives in reverence, submission, and service because of Christ who is in heaven. And therefore, we express our worship at home in acts of kindness between flatmates, between a husband and a wife, between parents and children, especially in listening to one another and in dressing the needs of each person. In other words, worship is, is expressed at home throughout the week in acts of kindness. Worship is expressed at work 
in acts of obedience or at college in acts of submission to authority that serve the needs of our employers or our teachers or our employees or our students. In acts of kindness, you see, the way we act in kindness and mercy towards others at work is our worship of God. Or in the community where we seek the welfare of the needy, whether it's here in central London or in the far-flung parts of the world. We show our worship for God in the self-sacrifice of our lives. Now, this self-sacrifice is said to be living because we're now spiritually alive in Christ and we're not like the dead animals offered in, in, uh, in the temple. Our whole lives are to be characterized by sacrifice for the good of others. It's a holy sacrifice because we're to live with the purity appropriate to the God who is holy. It's pleasing to God, which means living sacrificially for him, not in pointless asceticism. So, you know, it's not that God just likes us to hurt ourselves. So we don't go around, you know, beating our backs or, or going without God's good things for no particular reason. No, we're to sacrifice ourselves where it pleases God in obedience to his word. But we're not to go without the good things that God wants us to enjoy and gives, gives to us to enjoy. Those are a kind of distortion of Christianity, which thinks that if you just go without things for no particular reason, just going without things is good in itself. It's called asceticism. Well, that's quite wrong. In fact, in Timothy, Paul says that's demonic teaching because it makes God out to be evil, that he doesn't want us to enjoy the good things that he's given us in accordance with his word. And he does. So it's not asceticism, but for the good of others. You see, it's very important to understand this because it helps us work out when we need to make sacrifices and when we, need, when we can enjoy the good things God gives us. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't go to the cross because he likes pain. He didn't go to the cross because it's great just to sacrifice myself and, and feel dreadful. He went to the cross for the sake of other people, for our salvation. And so we're to make sacrifices for the good of others, but not in pointless asceticism. At this point, you say, mate, so well, is this the sacrificial madness of the suicide bomber? Is this the same kind of uh, devoted, worshipful self-sacrifice of somebody that's prepared to blow people up? Not at all, because truly Christian sacrifice is not only motivated by, but also shaped by the mercy of God. In other words, in view of God's mercy, is not only the reason we worship, it's also the shape of our worship. In other words, we respond to others with the mercy that has been shown to us in Christ. With mercy and not with conquest in the service of others and not in trying to blow them up. Totally different, you see. Of course, people will use Christianity, as they have in the Crusades in Northern Ireland, as an excuse for conflict. But biblical, genuine, Jesus-shaped Christian worship is always for the good of others. Now, says the apostle, this self-sacrifice is your spiritual, or literally, your reasonable act of worship. Uh, the word here used here actually means logical. It means reasonable, sensible, rational. Because this kind of worship, this response to God, is utterly appropriate and logical when you think about the mercy of God. When you understand the mercy of God, to give your whole life self-sacrificially for God in the service of others is utterly sensible, utterly rational, logical way of responding. 
Uh, can I commend to you uh, again this uh, book? I mentioned it last weekend. It's uh, reviewed in uh, the next edition of uh, our Pulse magazine. Uh, the Reason for God by Timothy Keller, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, is a brilliant book explaining the reasons for Christian faith. Much more about that uh, another time. But come and uh, look at this or order one from the, the bookstore. If you um, are not yet a Christian and you look at the sacrifices made by Christians and think they seem weird and strange, can I tell you the reason is because you don't yet understand the mercy of God. And when you do understand the mercy of God, then you too will want to respond. You will want to respond with a life of sacrificial worship. Uh, This uh, week um, I had the, the joy with some of the staff of going to a church planting conference in New York. And uh, it was a very helpful conference. We went to one period to go and look at Ground Zero, uh, you know, where the, uh, the trade center once existed. Uh, if you've been there or seen pictures of it, of course, it's very striking because there's almost nothing there. This is absolutely immense kind of um, building site, hole in the ground. But what's very striking, considering um, what you expect from American culture, is how little uh, razzmatazz there is around this. I mean, there's no, there's no kind of obvious commemoration or very little um, it's just a massive, great big building site. As you walk around, I, I thought to myself, this seems like a nation still in shock, not quite sure what to say about this devastation. And so there's just this empty building site. But the one thing I did find going around there is various tributes to the New York Fire Department and to the fire station right opposite the site, are various commemorative tributes to the bravery of those who lost their lives. Now, of course, you'd never understand the respect and the honor and the devotion shown to the New York Fire Department if you didn't know that 341 firefighters lost their lives as they plunged into the building trying to uh, rescue people from the World Trade Center towers on September the 11th. I mean, if you didn't know that, you'd think, how weird. Why is New York, why are New Yorkers or why are Americans in general so respectful? Why, are they, why do they live in such reverence for the New York Fire Department? Well, you wouldn't know unless you knew what they had done on that day. And if Christianity seems illogical and irrational, it's because we haven't yet understood the mercy of God. It's like the uh, devotion of that woman who, who, remember she crashed into a luncheon party with Simon the Pharisee. Uh, Jesus was there for lunch. And uh, this woman who'd been forgiven by Jesus for all her sin, she'd clearly been a very immoral woman, probably a prostitute. And she crashed the lunch party and was weeping with tears of devotion as she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair and broke open the, uh, the, the little jar of perfume and poured it all over his feet. And Simon was horrified, and the guests were all, must have been just horrified. I mean, what is this woman doing? I mean, why is she making such an embarrassing scene? Why is she so devoted to Jesus that she behaves in this ridiculous way? And Jesus explains to Simon, he doesn't understand the mercy of God. See, those who've been forgiven much love much. Well, where does this sacrificial worship, this logical, reasonable response begin? It begins with the, the renewing of your mind, verse 2. Our whole lives are to be offered, but our behavior and our emotions are, of course, uh, steered by our minds and our attitudes. And so we need our minds to be gradually transformed, to by our mindset, our worldview, our attitudes and opinions transformed. Not by spiritual indoctrination, just spiritual education. And so we're not to conform any longer, says the Apostle. Allow your mindset to be transformed by God through his word. You see, the pattern of this world is hostility to God. 
We live in a culture that is hostile to God. So from the cradle to the grave, we are being boiled in this hostility to God, like frogs being slowly boiled to death without complaint. You know, everything we hear from the media, everything we're taught in college and at school, everything seems to be based largely on pluralistic assumptions and hostility to God. So says the apostle, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, allowing the renewal of all things in the future to shape the renewal, to shape our thinking now. So if Boris Johnson is now the mayor of London, uh, throughout uh, City Hall and throughout uh, the city, people are now going to have to change their attitudes, have to change the way they're planning for the future because it's now the age of Boris Johnson. I mean, he's now arrived and let's face it, it's going to be fun. It is not going to be boring, is it, having Boris Johnson as mayor? And so, of course, uh, now he is the mayor. People have to change their attitude in accordance with him being the mayor. And as Jesus has been appointed king of the universe, and as our futures are in his hands, we need to have our mindsets and our attitudes changed and renewed in accordance with the kingdom that he is bringing. And when we do that, says the apostle, you'll know how to please God. When you understand, when your mind is, is transformed and renewed by God, then not just uh, on a Sunday, but in every day as we read God's word, as his spirit renews our thinking and our minds, then we'll know how to worship God in our daily lives. This is not incidentally about guidance. It's not about getting signs from God to know what to do. It's about worshipping him, about living our lives in a way that pleases him. And the apostle then gives an example, verses 3 to 8. Serve others. Serve others. Let me remind you of what he says. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So here's his first example. We'll look at others next week. Here's his first example of how to live a life of worship. Serve others. Paul says he speaks by the grace given me, not in arrogance, but with the authority of an apostle, to every one of you. Because everyone in every church has been given gifts from God to contribute to our community life. But sadly, you see, all of our contributions can be spoilt by pride. It's the first problem in church community life, pride. And so he says, verse 3, don't think of yourself too highly. Don't think of yourself too highly. Don't nurture an inflated view of yourself that's based upon ability and giftedness. But rather with sober, sensible and realistic judgment based on the measure of faith that God has created in you. Based on the faith commitment to God which is being grown by God in our lives. You see, disunity is commonly caused in a church by those with an inflated view of themselves based upon their giftedness rather than on their godliness, on their faculties rather than their faith. 
And the way this works is that that our pride, you see, will, will cause us to push for recognition and resent the lack of it. It will inhibit community life because we'll regard ourselves as above serving others and be forever disappointed that others don't serve us as we reckon they should. I know how this works because I've got it in my heart too. Paul warns that competitive ambition and self-promotion based on an inflated view of ourselves is not worship that pleases God. Perhaps in Rome, such pride was especially evident along racial grounds because it seems from Romans that um, some of the non-Jews thought themselves superior to the Jews. In our church here at TBT, I, I guess it may be that subtle assumption of superiority based on salary, based on the school we went to or the university we attended, based on our position or our ministry in church. There are countless subtle ways, aren't there, in which we count ourselves better than other people. Actually, it's pretty childish and immature. And that's the problem. People who are gifted, but immature in faith. Um, A friend of ours called uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones has written this brilliant children's book, How to Be a Baby by Me, the Big Sister. And um, I've been reading it to our uh, uh, littlest, Annabelle. She absolutely loves it. And what's so brilliant about this book is that it captures absolutely a child's sense of superiority to a baby. So, uh, for example, let me read a a few things. Your mummy and daddy have to dress you because you don't know how, brackets, but I do. When you're a baby, it's not good because you don't have any hair, brackets. I have long hair like a princess. When you're a baby, when you're a baby, you don't read books, you eat them. You, You don't understand TV. People talk to you, but you don't know what it means. You talk, but no one knows what you're saying because you just make it all up. You sing songs, but you don't know the words or the tune. Brackets, I know the words and the tune and the dance. (laughs) When you're a baby, you don't have any real friends. Brackets, I have lots. (laughs) It's brilliant because it captures a child's sense, an innate sense of um, superiority. And my my four-year-old daughter absolutely loves it. Because it so wonderfully captures for her why she is superior to a baby. It's childish thinking. It's childish thinking. And, of course, it divides churches. And you find it, says the apostle, because of pride. You see, we may impress some people with our giftedness, but the gifts come from God, and he is looking for Christ-like servant-heartedness. How it must grieve the Lord of all, who humbled himself to become our servant, even to dying for us on a cross, to witness, witness our inflated egos that prevent us from serving other people. Sadly, I think some people develop the habit of moving church when they feel unrecognized. Others push for recognition until they get it or stir up opposition to church leadership in their bitterness. It's quite common. Paul commends a different approach. A renewed mindset that understands the church community as the body of Christ with different parts united in him. He says, look, verse 4 and 5, we belong to each other. Our own bodies are made up of different parts with diverse functions. Our eyes have different roles to our legs. Our ears can't do what our hands can do, and vice versa. That's not grounds for superiority, but for cooperation. Because all the parts of the body belong to the same body and share in the same life. So with the church. We shouldn't be competing with each other. 
We belong to each other in the same body because we all share in the life of Christ. So each of us must dedicate ourselves not to promoting ourselves, but to the good of others. Because our gifts are not given to us for our own benefit, but to serve others. In fact, they're given to the church in us. So there's no place for despair or self-loathing or self-pity in a church because we're all gifted by God to contribute in some way as the people we are. We don't have to try and be like somebody else. God's made us as the people we are to contribute what we are to the church community. And we all need each other. There's no place for feeling unnecessary or unimportant for the rest of the body needs us. And if one of the limbs is not working... The body is injured and incapacitated like West Ham. The parallel is obvious. Just as West Ham have been struggling this year through injuries to players, so many churches are limping through their season, underperforming, because so many of the members are not fit and contributing. What a joy to work in a church with a tradition of massive participation from the membership. Some of us perhaps need to offer ourselves Uh, for service. Come and see one of the church leaders, one of the elders, one of the staff, and we can uh, help you think through how you might contribute. But there's also no place for superiority, for regarding ourselves as more gifted and talented than is being recognized, or in keeping what we could contribute to ourselves, or using those gifts and abilities elsewhere than in the church where God has put us. Some of us will need to offer ourselves in whatever capacity we can and not hold back through laziness that leaves the work and the resourcing to an exhausted minority or in a pride that expects much more recognition and resents serving other people. We belong to each other and we need each other. And we've heard tonight in hearing about the International Cafe of an obvious place where we could serve. We have different gifts from God for others, he says. Paul lists seven gifts that are representative of a wide diversity of abilities that God gives. It's not an exhaustive list. There are as many kinds of gifting as there are people. And God gives and grows these gifts. He provides what we need. I think the best thing to do, rather than trying to worry about what exact gift we have or ability we have, to get on with serving the needs of others. And perhaps others will be able to name or describe what it is that we're doing. As we respond to the needs and serve, we'll find that we're able to give the people, as the people we are with the gifts that God has given to us. First comes prophesying, the immediate insight into the meaning of Scripture. In one sense, we can all prophesy and declare the word of God, but some are gifted in it. Let it be done in proportion to the maturity of our faith. Then a set of three gifts, serving the need of others, teaching, that's prepared sermons and Bible studies, encouraging exhorting people to obey the word of God. Then a final set of three, contributing to the needs of others, especially financially. Some of us will have a tremendous ministry in that regard. Do so generously as God has been generous to us. If it's leading in the church, do so with diligence and not laziness. If it's showing mercy, do so cheerfully, rather than manipulating the kind of recognition we all crave. In other words, use your gifts for others. They're given to the church in you. For those of us perhaps who are newly saved and and don't quite know how we can contribute, talk to us. Talk to the staff. Talk to us about how we could help. 
And to so many who have served this church so faithfully for so many years, you know who you are. You know who you are because you're tired. You know who you are because you're exhausted. Because you've been serving at cost to yourself. On behalf of the rest of us, perhaps I could say, thank you. Thank you for giving of yourselves. For your self-sacrifice is your worship. Worship for God is expressed in the sacrificial service of others. Your self-sacrifice is your worship. The songs we sing mean nothing unless we're living lives devoted to God in the service of others. Worship is not a private, individualistic, self-centered indulgence. It's serving others in the church. Mind you, it's not just social service. It's motivated and shaped by the mercy of God. Worship is self-sacrifice that is motivated by the mercy of God. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord God in heaven, we praise you for your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. We ask you to help us to understand this mercy and to rejoice in it and to be captured and thrilled by it once more. And whether we're new to these things or very familiar with them, would you help us to learn to respond to your mercy and to live lives of sensible, reasonable worship of self-sacrifice? Would you help us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, serving the needs of others as our worship of you. We ask, Lord God, that you'd help us to remember that our self-sacrifice is our worship. And may our devotion to you be expressed in the self-sacrificial service of others. For we ask it in Jesus, the one who gave himself for us. Amen.